0: Welcome to the Feed the Ball Podcast with me, your host, Derek Duncan, Architecture Editor at Golf Digest. This is Episode 82, and my guest is Golf Course Builder, Alan McCurrick. In the January 2023 issue of Golf Digest, we announced the winners of our Best New Course Award, along with the winners of Best Transformation and Best Renovation. The winners of the Best New Course Award are usually newsworthy because they, being new courses, are often unfamiliar to readers. The announcement is sometimes the first widespread introduction or inside look of these courses to the golf world. This year's winner for Best New Private Course is particularly newsworthy because it is entirely off the radar of almost everyone and has been one of the most secretive golf projects in recent memory. It's called the Die Course at White Oak, located adjacent to a vast nature conservation in the isolated woods outside of Jacksonville on the Florida-Georgia border. It was developed by a billionaire owner, Mark Walter, who runs a global financial analysis firm and is also a majority owner of the Los Angeles Dodgers, among other ventures. In 2013, he contacted Pete Dye to build a new course next to the conservation that he'd recently purchased. You can read more about all of this in the January issue of Golf Digest. And over the next several years, Dye and golf course contractor and close confidant Alan McCurrick developed a plan for the site. The project moved slowly. And by the time Walter was ready to commence construction, Dye's health had deteriorated to the point where he wasn't actively working anymore. The job of building the course, of which almost no one aside from a few dozen Golf Digest panelists and personal invitees of Walter has played, fell to McCurrick. McCurrick began working on new courses for Dye as a young grinder in the 1980s, then opened his own construction firm in 1987. Since then, his company has built over 100 new courses and remodels for architects like Tom Fazio, Bobby Weed, Reese Jones, Arnold Palmer, Greg Norman, and many others, including over 20 projects for Pete Dye. That 40-year association with Dye put McCurick in a unique position to carry out the architect's vision. Though the two had many conversations about the design before Dye passed away in January 2020, it was up to McCurric to interpret those discussions and translate them into the holes. Dye never drew comprehensive plans or blueprints, so McCurrick made decisions about the elevations, bunker shapes, grades, green contours, and finish work based on what he thought Dye would have done. The result is vastly intriguing. Pure, essential Dye, filtered through the eyes and experience of someone who knew him best, without any of the impulses or scar tissue of the actual architect that might have seeped into the design otherwise. In this discussion, McCurrick and I will talk extensively about the design and backstory of White Oak, about his thoughts and observations of his friend, mentor, and collaborator's architecture and approach to design, and how it evolved and changed through time, and his five decades of building golf courses for some of the game's most prolific designers. There is some awkwardness about discussing in detail a course that virtually no listeners will ever get to see or play, at least not in the near future. But the story behind it, and how White Oak represents the best expression we have... Of where arguably one of the three or four most consequential architects who's ever lived was in his late, incredibly late thinking, more than merits the attention. I hope you enjoyed this talk. Here's Alan McCurick. I never had a chance to spend any time with Pete Dye in person, but what I always think about when I think about him is I did have a, a chance to talk to him on the phone a number of occasions, and I don't remember how I got his phone number, but I would just dial it up, and it was always either he would answer this phone in his house or Alice would and they would. Uh, it was often at night, and I would just have this conversation with Pete about whatever we were. I was calling to talk about, and he would uh, be sitting in his like reclining chair, just talking to me. And Alice would be in the same room, invariably, and and he'd be watching television. And we would just have a conversation. It was like calling your 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 grandfather and talking to him. One time, we I was talking to him and asking him questions, and he was watching the golf channel and they were showing a clip of a video of himself giving another interview. And he says, I'm just, I'm watching myself on television right now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's pretty, pretty uh hundred percent authentic and unscripted for sure.
0: You've worked with him for, for so many years and on so many different projects, you probably know, got to know Pete as, as well as anybody in this business. Was he different I imagine that not, but was was there a uh, on the job Pete Dye and an off the job Pete Dye? Uh, was he different when um, the bulldozers were moving?
1: Uh, yeah, he was, uh, but you know the the one thing I talk about the guy is he was all golf all the time. I mean, um, he would be he would be you know off the job he would be you know, maybe more relaxed, but he's still, he was just a dialed in guy. I mean, even when you were spending time with Pete and Alice in their house that, that, you know, it never left the golf channel unless, unless Andy Griffith came on. And then sometimes it would go to Andy Griffith because he liked Andy Griffith in his later years, but no, it was with Pete, it was all golf all the time. When you're out on the golf course, working a project, it was that job and that job only, um, you know, completely dialed in. But as far as Other hobbies, other uh, interests. I mean, I can't tell you that he had a lot of them because he and Alice were just all golf all the time.
0: Yeah, it didn't seem like he didn't seem like the kind of person that would take a vacation. I think he was working almost all the time, just like so many people in your profession do. It's just one job. You're going to one job after another after another.
1: Yeah, and he did he did holidays and stuff with the family, but but that's exactly right. I mean, he just he was just super dialed in. I mean, you know, as you would imagine, the coffee table was full of golf magazines, and the the shelves were full of golf books. Um, You know, not not remotely interested in politics, not remotely interested in. He was into the golf business uh, beyond just golf architecture. He was interested in the moves of the shakes of the PGA Tour. Alice, you know, kept a keen eye on the ladies' tours and you know struggles or what they may be going through. And but all opinions were based on all of golf all the time.
0: When you spent time around him and Alice off the job site. Would you talk about architecture and, and ideas and, and concepts, or, or were they other golf-related themes, like you just mentioned the, the tour, or you know how how far the the guys were hitting the ball, or things like that? But were there were there specific conversations about getting you know into the nuts and bolts and mud of design and architecture?
1: Yeah, oh sure, yeah, they would talk about you know things that they felt good about that they've that they had done, and they would you know they would talk about they were critical of some of their own stuff as well. Um, and you know, they would look at, you know, different aspects of what they did and they would, you know, well, maybe shouldn't have done that. Or maybe that was a little harsh or, you know, just comments like that. But, uh, and then they, you know, they talked about their relationships and the given, I mean, relationships with clients and the given purpose for a given product, you know, and, um, it was just all golf, all business all the time.
0: One of the things that I always, when I look back at the courses that that Pete built, there's, and I'm not the only one who thinks this. This is not an original thought. There are. It seems to me that there are uh, distinct eras. You know, there's early, early Pete when you look at Crooked Stick and the Golf Club and and those other that first generation of courses he built, and then at some point there's middle Pete, and this is this is TPC Sawgrass, PGA West, Black Wolf Run. You know, these these kind of big landmark golf courses that are epic in in scale and architectural impact and historical impact. And then there's late Pete Dye. And I'm not sure where exactly that begins where, you know, there aren't as many major projects as a lot of he's going back and, and uh, tinkering and the things that he is building is kind of taking on a, a different shape and form. The bunkers style evolves and the greens evolve a little bit. How would you, I know this is a big question, Alan, but how would how would you define the different eras of, of Pete and, and the transitions and, and what caused to your knowledge, like what caused Pete to evolve from one place to another?
1: Well, there was a specific period uh, in the 80s when, you know, he was very uh, through the TPC and he was very tied to Dean Beeman and Dean Beeman was taking on the, the big square groove and ping and all that stuff. And that was kind of Dean's soapbox and that he was standing on, barking about. And Pete started very early complaining about green speeds, green speeds, green speeds. You know, we're going to make all these greens obsolete. And that was, you know, that was Pete's soapbox that he was barking about. And Pete, I can tell you from from a point somewhere, you know, mid 80s to early 90s, Um, You know, Pete always moved water off his greens in three primary directions, uh, three macro directions, let's call it. And, you know, Pete's early greens and not early, not not the not the golf club, not the crooked stick, not that early, early phase. But that second phase, I mean, you know, how dramatic were the first set of greens at the TPC? Very dramatic, so much so that they ended up having to get dumbed down some. But as as so he 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 kind of tried to move with the industry, and I think, quite frankly, it was almost a mistake on his part. And you know, who am I to say the man made a mistake? But um, he followed green speeds, and he got softer and he got softer to accommodate the twelve. You know, what was nine, then turned to ten on the stamp, then turned to eleven, then turned to twelve, and then turned to thirteen. He basically accommodated the the speeds going up had he, in my, in my thinking, had he stayed the same and just put, put his stuff on the ground, the superintendents to keep those greens playable would have kept the interest in them and, 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 and you know, slowed their mowers down just because the greens, you know, wouldn't have been able to facilitate it. And then he started putting a lot of smaller movement instead of macro movement late in his career, and he started moving water off in, you know, five or six different directions early in his career, he had a, he had a fundamental principle, you know, there was a fundamental guide, let's call it. I mean, there was nothing principled in terms of, you know, what Pete would do. He was willing to do anything, you know, that his imagination would put out there. That's the biggest thing that defines Pete Dye and golf course architect is courage. I mean, the man, you know, his courage framed in a great understanding of golf, but he would, he would he would put dramatic movement, and there was always an event from one pin position to another pin position, and then there's a basically a flat second putt. Well, he started trying to put in a lot of small micro movement, even flat, trying to stump guys on short putts, and that was his kind of his defense late in his career. Was water going off in five or six different directions? Oh, what I was saying is in an early career. He would he he basically had one foot of grade change from the lowest point to the front to the highest point in the back. And then as kind of his answer to green speeds and square grooves, he went he he would go flat from front to back with movement in between the things in between those two points. So he changed he changed, in my opinion, kind of following what clubs and balls were doing. Had he stayed the same, this is just my opinion, had he stayed the same and kept his big, you know, his big honors course, his, you know, big early TPC movement in the greens, the industry would have had to have followed him. But his insight into where the green speeds were going led him to getting softer and softer and softer.
0: Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And it makes you realize that even somebody as influential as Pete Dye does, they don't always maybe realize how influential they can be, because if, as you were saying, he had built the golf course as he envisioned it rather than to accommodate high green speeds, it might have, <laughs> I don't want to say change the trajectory of architecture, uh, th- that's going way too far, but it, it might have slowed down the process of having green speeds and, and 13 on the stint meter dictate how architects design their putting contours. Exactly, but he exactly. Had, he would be the one guy who had the clout to put his foot down and have said, "No, you know we're heading off in a bad direction, and this is a more interesting style of golf with these larger green movements." Exactly, and that's what he
1: you know that's what he had early on, and then he basically facilitated facilitated the change because he did. He had the foresight to see the change coming, and he facilitated that change by getting a little softer later in his
0: career when you worked for him later in his career when he'd go back and and revisit his courses and and modify greens that he'd previously built did you were you able to have a discussion with him about the decision or were the were you all too far down the line at that point
1: yeah i mean i was i was very vocal. I mean, the way I would state it is I loved your, I loved all these big macro moving greens that you, you know, you used to, you know, you used to build and he just, you know, he would, he would just tell me, you, you know, green speeds today. We can't do that, Alan. And a lot of the products that he went back to, to rebuild um, he did. I mean, there's a general softening of greens when, when Pete came to town and took a second swing at your golf course.
0: We're going to talk about, uh, the die course at White Oak and my observation, which I shared with you before, and I think you you agreed that that's what you were trying to do is, is get back to this earlier mode of green design that Pete had kind of evolved on a, a, away from. But what was the dynamic between you and, and Pete on the job site? If I'm not mistaken, usually the client hires the the contractor. So you weren't working directly for Pete, but it's his, it's his job, right? It's his, <laughs> it's it's his operation, to, so to speak, and you have to work within the context of what his his design plan is. What what was the relationship when you were on site and you did have want to have a discussion about a, a decision that was being made uh, about a hold or a feature or a contour?
1: Well, my relationship with Pete versus some of the other people that we had worked with, you know, was was fantastic we do i mean we get hired by the client but as builders we work for the architect um i mean at the end of the day i mean we get hired by the client he's one that pays us but our report card is ultimately written by the architect that we work for um with pete it was always unique i mean there's i remember a time in the in the 90s that was uh the 90s you know everything everybody's building everything and 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 architects lean on shapers and and a lot of these other architects we were working for wanted to see a list of the shapers and their experience and this and this this and this and what golf courses they worked on and what architects they'd worked with so on and so forth and i remember with i got this job down at port st Lucie with pete And I brought him a list of our shapers and, and I handed it to him. He said, what's this? I said, well, these are some of the guys that, you know, we're, I'm thinking about putting down here, working with you. And this guy's did this and this, and this guy worked for, worked for so-and-so architect. And he, he looked at me and I'll, I'll I'll clean it up for you, but he basically said, "Alan, I don't give a damn about any of this. Just give me a guy that can run the damn machine. I'll tell <laughs> him what I want on the ground." And he basically took my list and just threw it on the ground, you know, maybe with a few adjectives in there, friendly, warming adjectives that he always tended t- tended to use. But uh, yeah, he just he just he didn't he just he didn't want anybody on his projects from a shaping standpoint to be pre-programmed to anything. Um, now, if he came from one job to the other job with Pete, that was okay because he had a point of reference that he could talk to the guy. But he did not want any preconceived thoughts. He tried to attack jobs without a lot of preconceptions, so he didn't want people on the job to really have a big preconception about you know what was going to be what, and what style was going to be what.
0: I hear that. I hear that about Pete uh, when I talk to other people who've worked with him, and I also hear it occasionally. Even today, with other designers, when they're talking about uh, shapers, for instance, about how it's it's almost better sometimes to choose somebody who who doesn't know what they're doing. And I think I've heard stories where, where Pete would, you know, just pull somebody with with very little golf knowledge or no golf knowledge uh, onto a site as long as they could they could move the tractor, as you were just saying, and and he could tell them what to build. And I wonder if that's a, an, an issue in the industry where there are so many. Talented shapers who have worked on all of these, you know, George Thomas courses and Seth Rayner courses and mckenzie courses and uh, modern courses, and they have all of this this architectural knowledge. I wonder if it's more difficult to to get them to be humble or 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 build, a, you know, outside of their their range of, of intellectual experience. If that, I don't know if that yeah, makes no. sense. No, it
1: makes perfect sense. I mean. I mean, when you when you get you know this this whole word shaper, I I kind of hate it. But anyways, this this you know everybody leans on their experience. So if a guy comes uh, comes from a mold of working for one certain architect and he's he knows what that guy you know is receptive, what that architect's receptive to, he's 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 his default is going to be to revert back to that mold. And I mean, Pete was moldless. I mean, he didn't. He just didn't want any of that. He just he just wanted a clean slate. He wanted guys that could run the machine. I mean, I'll never forget, you know, I shaped a Greens complex for Pete. And, you know, he would he would come up and he would say, You've got this five percent perfect. The rest of it ain't worth a damn, you know. And and he'd put his arm around you while he was telling you that. But uh, you know, it was it was always an exercise with Pete. And what what you found when you worked with Pete is is the level of Uh, you know, just keep hitting it. I mean, you could wear out the dirt, just keep hitting it until keep hitting it and hitting it. And and he, he would evolve. He'd say, let's, you know, let's try to get this back right pin position up or something or something. And you would do that and he'd come back. say that doesn't look very good at all. Let's take this back right pin position down, you know, and try to get some differentiation or, or what have you. It's not like he came in with a clear shot looking at this greens complex and he knew exactly what he wanted. He had some, initial thoughts if it was left to right, right to left, if the front door was open or closed or what have you, he I mean he had basic baseline thoughts. but as the shape of it would evolve, so would his thought process. He would work through what he was seeing. And if he liked some of it, he'd leave some of it. If he didn't like it, it was obviously gone. and so I don't know if that answers your question, but he he you know he himself, it was an open process on on everything you did with him. It was, a, it was an evolving process while you're shaping the green. If some architects, they give you a concept. They want you to meet that concept. Pete, just, just, it was just an open book from the, day, the first time you stuck a blade on the green.
0: You know, one of the things I, that always interests me is, is how, and I think, it's, I think what you said it gets at this, is, is how many people Pete touched on the job. The, the amount of loyalty that still exists and floats around in the air that we breathe for for Pete and the love that, that people who work with him have for him is is remarkable. I don't sense it in in almost any other designer uh, associate relationship out there except for Bill Core probably. Um, but Pete just touched so many people, and they just remain so uh, you know touched by him. I don't know other, another way to say it. it it's, it's pure love. How is working a job for Pete Dye different than working uh, for other architects? And specifically, here's what I, here's what I, I think the, the answer may lie other than just the personal relationship is I'm sure you work a lot of jobs where you are handed a, a set of technical plans and grading plans and you know irrigation and, and all of these, these blueprints and your job is to produce them whereas Pete was known for not having any of that stuff and having stick, stick figure drawings. And like, you know, he'd write left, right, right, left, left, right, right. You know, and, and, but really it was just being developed as, as he went along. The specifics were, did that, was that, uh, was one preferable to the other for you? Uh, was the, the nebulousness of working with Pete ever a challenge? What was the difference between working for a, on a Pete Dye project versus a, an architect who produced a big set of plans?
1: Well, you know, working with P- Pete was a tremendous uh, – I mean, he, Pete was always uh, – he was fun to work with. And, and if you're working on a Pete Dye golf course – I mean, you weren't working in the ghetto. I mean, you're working on a pretty – you you always knew that what you were working on had the chance to be a pretty special project um, because Pete's involved. And, and Pete was fun. And, I mean, let's not – I mean, one thing that can never be overlooked with Pete Dye is the damn man was a grind at hard worker. I mean, a grind at hard worker. I mean, you know, I had to learn that after I left Pete Dye. You know, working for him daily. I mean, you know, Sunday was just another day that ended in why. And when I started my little company, I, I, you know, I would, I, I treated it the same way, and it got pretty lonely out there because I was the only damn guy showing up because everybody was quitting because, you know, it just wasn't enough. But Pete was a grind, grind it, grind it, grind it, hard worker. I mean, he, he he really was a hard worker and that, you know, obviously that led everybody else. And then there was an energy and an excitement about what you were doing. And I mean, you knew you were working for a guy who was super passionate about what he was doing and you just showed up and you turned on your ears and you got to work every day. Um, Well, you know, working for other architects, I mean, you know, there is an industry behind this as well. And yeah, I mean, it's, you know, from a, from, from an efficiency standpoint, it's a lot nicer working for somebody who has a set of plans. And if you know, you put that plan on the ground that you're, you know, at first look, you're 80% right, or you're 90% right. Um, That's efficient. There's an, you know, I won't say that Pete's way of building a golf course is the most efficient way of building a golf course. um, Because there is, you're using the eraser as much as you're using the pencil. I mean, you're, you're, you're trying stuff, you're knocking it down, you're restarting and, so there's some inefficiencies, but there's also some energy that's created on a peat die golf course. But to answer your question, we do both and both are, you know, and I've built great golf courses off of paper as well. You know, if you, you know, knowing that you're going to put something on the ground and 80% of it's going to survive the day.
0: Let's look at this, this next thing I'm going to ask in, in a, not in a critical way, but in a way of, of honoring something that no longer exists. Uh, we talked about the evolution of, of Pete's greens and the reasons why they changed, specifically uh, green speeds. But if you were going to be able to resurrect uh, uh, so several sets of, of Pete's greens that had been modified over the years, what are some of the golf courses that had some of those original best sets of peat Dye greens that uh, you know, in another parallel world we'd put back just the way they were?
1: Well, and, and, you know, I can only, I haven't been to every Pete Dye golf course, but I can tell you that, you know, some of the stuff, and I guess may, may be guilty of a point of engagement to the ones I was engaged with. But I mean, I wish, I wish, I wish that today's technology, if we could have found, you know, they've got this technology now where you can take, you know, all the grades and you can copy a green to its entirety. I wish the first set of greens at TPC were in a vault somewhere. Uh, but they're not but you know the long cove set of greens were phenomenal the honors course set of greens were phenomenal in my opinion i mean these are again these are the three move these are the water getting off in three macro directions i mean there's probably others that i haven't seen but you know those sets of greens are and then you know you look at harbor town i mean right. harbor town although right. they're just they just they're just so small that uh you know that there's not a lot of movement, but the volume of movement that's in those small greens is magnificent. Uh, the original set of greens at the golf club up in new Albany, Ohio, I thought, I thought were fantastic. I never saw the original set of greens at crooked stick. Uh, so I can't speak to those, but, um, again, I, I you're asking my opinion and my opinion probably shaped by the era. And I just like that, that early era stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe not as fond as as the water moving off in six or seven directions, um, you know, as as he evolved to later in his career.
0: Well, that brings us indirectly to White Oak, which uh, is such an interesting project and an interesting golf course. And, and all the people that are listening to this are just by definition, you know, they're not going to know much about the golf course. They're only going to be learning about it uh When they when they listen to this and it started off in in 2013 Um, and and just some background for the listeners. This is a a golf course in northeast Florida outside of Jacksonville. Uh, It's out uh, attached to a conservation preserve. It's on the border of Georgia and Florida and there's nothing there. I mean, there's nothing manufactured on this entire golf course. You know, there's just nothing made of a hard substance other than you know maybe rakes and uh, t markers if they even put them out. I mean, it's just it's out in in nature. The the owner uh, approached Pete Dye and, and and you in 2013 to map out this 18 hole this new 18 hole golf course for me. Um What were the what were some of those early discussions that that you and Pete had about the concept for this course? Because I, if I'm not mistaken one of the intentions that you discussed was to try to maybe go back to some of those earlier design themes that we've been talking about.
1: Yeah. And we, and Pete and I talked about that a lot. So we, we met the client in 2013 and, 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 and a side note to this is, is every, there's what I call the Pete winter migration is Pete would always fly into Jacksonville, go to the TPC. And I would, I was the butler. I was the, the, I would pick them up at the airport. We'd go to TPC a couple of days. We'd stop at White Oak for a couple of days. We'd go, go to Harbor town. And then from there we'd go to Kiowa and then they would get a plane out of Kiowa and I would fly back. And I always had Pete and Alice for this week every year during this migration. So from 2013 until construction started I guess, 2018, maybe there's a four or five year gap between the time that the client hired Pete and he finally gave Pete the go ahead to get started on the project. Um, Pete and I spent a lot of time talking about that. He knew what an opportunity it was going to be. And and we spent a whole lot of time talking about it. Um, I initially took down the map, the plans to Pete, the wetlands plans to Pete. And when I tell people that I was I was with Pete when he was doing the routing, I did not help him other than when he tore something up and threw it on the ground, I'd pick it up and put it in the trash. <laughs> but I would just I would just show him I showed him you know where the wetlands were, and and we spent two days or he spent two days doing the routing, and and I just spent three three or four nights down there with him. You know this is all down at Gulfstream, and and he did the routing, and then we submitted it and it got approved and we got all the permits, but it sat for four or five years before the owner pulled the trigger. So Pete and I talked about it endlessly. He was committed to putting in the pump stations. He was committed to the base grades of the pump stations and how to get the water, you know, Pete always, you know, get the water off first. Um, and we thought through that. And I brought up the idea of building the greens, you know, back in that, that era and, and, you know, Pete, he never baptized it or, you know, in P- P- Pete's way, what he did was he said, okay, Alan, we'll see, you know, okay, Alan, we'll see, you know, that's the best, that's the most positive answer you're going to get out of them. We'll, we'll talk about it when we get there. We'll talk about it when we get there. So, you know, it was, it was discussed a lot. Um, and Alice chimed in on it and Alice, you know, thought that that was kind of a, you know, a neat concept. And Pete was, would go back to green speeds. He was always, he didn't. He he always very concerned about any superintendent. And he said, you know, the superintendent's gonna maintain it like he's gonna maintain it. So we have to build it like he's gonna maintain it. Um, but uh, yeah, we talked about those greens move, moving those in three directions. We talked about keeping the sight lines simple out there. We actually moved a couple hundred thousand cubic yards of dirt off the property just so we could set this thing down in the ground and not on top of the ground. So Pete and I had a lot of macro conversations about that golf course before we started.
0: Yeah. It's it seemed to me when I played it that it was the in as like an essential distillation of if you could get down to like the pure essence of Pete Dye, like if you could scrub away all the layers that had accumulated over the years and and polish that that gem. That's what this golf course was. It was like it's so fundamentally, you know, Pete Dye from the strategies, the the way the holes lay on the ground, the horizontal lines, and then you have, you know, the 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 bunkers that that are sort of waste bunkers, but they kind of bleed into the native vegetation, and then you have like these greens that are they're they're not big greens, and they do have more. More contour and more action in them than, you know, anything that I think that I'd seen built by him in in a long time. It, it just seems to me like that it's it's just getting down to everything like an entire career's worth of, of architectural ideas and and tinkering and development and explosion and just boiling it down to like what is the the purest form of Pete Dye and does does that make sense to you and does is was that. I know that probably may not have been at the forefront of your mind, your discussions, but do you see the golf course in a similar way?
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, that's super, super well said. I mean, you know, I guess I, I, I ring the bell of success if an educated guy like yourself voices that kind of opinion. First thing I'm excited. You got to
0: play it. (laughs) I am too. (laughs) I'm one of of like a few dozen people.
1: Yeah. I'm excited you got to play it. And I, and I didn't know that you, You had played it. Um, That's fantastic. Yeah, I think that that's probably very, very accurate. Um, But, you know, it's uh, you know, it's like it's like Pete would never write his own report card on a project. So it's kind of hard for me to hear those comments. But I, I, I think that's I think that's fantastic. If it's if if every client, everybody that goes through that golf course consumes it like you did, it's a win.
0: I want to ask a, this in a slightly um, different way to, to, I'm trying to, you know, just seeing if there's, there's uh, an element of, 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 theory behind theory behind this golf course, if, if it exists, the site is not, it didn't really give you anything to work with. I mean, it's a very flat site, there's, there's no natural movement to it. The only benefit is, is that. You know, there's no housing development or anything else that, that you had to be concerned with. There were wetlands, nothing that you, you and, and Pete hadn't dealt with before. But, you know, it's, it's not site-wise, you know, dramatically different from, than something like dye preserve or, or metalist or, or Old Marsh or that type of, of property. So it, it's similar to other d- designs in some ways. But in your mind, what makes White Oak different from other Pete dye designs? I mean,
1: you know, I think at the onset and and a lot of those that you just said have have pump stations and and have the ability to take the golf course down into the ground instead of sitting on top of the ground and and getting grade change without having to go up. Mm -hmm. And whenever you go up, you pollute the horizon line so bad, you know, you just get that, you know, the horizons, you know. It is a very typical Florida site. There's nothing special about it. Um, it's not an ounce better or an ounce worse than 90 percent of the sites in Florida. It's, it' just is what it is. But I think Pete's commitment to to getting these pump stations put in and getting the things set down so that you know you can get you can get both the vertical and the horizon lines working well without having to work in excess. And having the ability, I mean, a lot of these projects are, are forced to take the dirt that you dig. And the fact that we just, the owner had so much property, we just took a quarter million yards of dirt and just got rid of it and just took it out of the frame. And these were all things that, you know, Pete was very much aware of uh, that we were going to be doing. These are all directives that came from Pete. Um, I think that macro step, I guess drainage led it, but the fact that we could... Take that golf course, a golf course in Florida. I guess maybe we had a little bit more freeboard than some golf courses in Florida. It was dead flat, so I'm not going to say there was more topo. I'm saying there's a little bit more freeboard from the water table that enabled us to take these golf holes down, and then the commitment of the owner to do that. Um, those two elements, I think, is what is what you know gave the golf course the feel. You know, that when you're looking at it, that it just looks less contrived and it's down in the ground, not on top of the ground. So I think that's the feel I get when I'm out there is that the thing just it just feels like it sets in there and we just, uh, you know, we just didn't overdo anything.
0: It's a it's a real trick to create that much character in a golf course on a site that doesn't give you any character to work with. Uh, and I think a lot of that is because, like I, I tried to say before there, you know, it, it looks like a Dye golf course. It feels like a Dye golf course. You have those, those shot shapes and those those strategies uh, you, and those those aesthetic and visual lines. But it comes down again to me, like to the greens. There's some really just, when you get to the greens at this golf course, that's, you know, your, your, your shot, that hole isn't over. It's just beginning in a way. There's some, I don't want to, go too far into it because it's it's unfortunately it's not a resort course that people will get a chance to play but there's some like fantastic like the the uh 16th green which is a long par four that runs along the river just has this beautiful fade away it fades in you know from kind of front right to back left and from right to left this tilt and you're hitting a long shot in there and you're banking it off to side um there are other holes like the short there's like a drivable par four sixth with this big crest in the middle, it kind of goes up, then it goes down, and there's some some side movements. Uh, and I could go on and on, but these green contours are just really fascinating. To play the seventeenth green is uh, I haven't seen anything like that uh, from Pete Dye in a long time. It has it. It reminds me a little bit of thirteen at at the Ocean Course, but it's a little deeper and a little more narrow and a little more angled. And um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, it's not a question, Alan. I'm just kind of reminiscing about some of the. The really interesting moments that you encounter on this golf course once you get to the green yeah and Pete's
1: you know Pete's uh you know beyond his net creativity is the diversity of his products uh, you know within a golf course I mean both from the size of his greens to the contours of his greens but they're all related to the shot coming into those things so you know uh, that's where the diversity comes from, um, but yeah, I mean he's he's legendary for six small, mixed, six medium, and six large greens, but making the greens con- contours conducive to the, the to the club, to the shot, to the elevation that you're coming at those greens. I mean, sixteen, you're right. 16's probably got, you know, it's kind of uh, big and broad because your feet are quite a bit above the the your the landing area is quite a bit above the elevation of the green. So, and that's an area where we did move dirt, but we moved it so big and broadly. But talking about architecture as a whole and peat as a whole, I mean, I think the one characteristic, it, it, I guess it gets framed in this minimalist, thick, minimalist thing. But I think the greatest, uh, 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 how do I say this? Restraint. I mean. I see architects, successful architects really know when to restrain what they're doing and just saying it's enough, let's go on to the next hole. Um, I mean these damn bulldozers and, and equipment we have, I mean, sometimes it's you know, we just we just go overboard. And I, I feel like that the, the 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 tool in the toolbox that the architect needs to work with the most is restraint. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't gotta put everything in on every hole. You know, you don't have to empty your bag of tricks on the on the first hole because hell, by the time you get to the third tee, you run out of tricks. Um, but I think Pete, you know, emphasized a lot of restraint out there, and and just just stuck to his mission, and that's why I think it, it maybe it's okay.
0: Do you think that has to do with experience on some level? You know, you've worked with so many architects going back to since 1987, but. You know, there's a. Te- I think there's a tendency in any artist, whether you're, it's you're an author, you're and you're writing, you know, your first novel, or you're a musician, and you know, you've had years of ideas piled up before you get to make your first record. But when you're a young artist, like you just want to get it all out there as fast as you can, and you want to express yourself and get your message to the public in any way you can, in the most explosive way you can. Is there a similarity to that in, in your experience in in golf course design, and maybe restraint comes with success and experience? Oh, for sure.
1: And I think that, you know, I think that what we have the benefit of is the, you know, is this, you know, 400 golf courses a year that we had to build as an industry or whatever crazy number it was in the nineties there that, you know, that we, we, as an industry, you look back on it and some, so much of it is puke worthy. I mean, it's just awful. And, you know, the only way you know, architects were just going bigger and bolder and bigger and bolder. And it was who could go bigger and who could go. And, and you look back at some of that work and it just feels terrible. (laughs) I mean, it just, it just feels bad. So, so yes, I mean, artists, architects, you know, all in the same, I think, you know, getting back to, to sometimes simple is just, you know, simple, simple. And Mm -hmm. just, yeah, I think we overthought it. And I think, yes, I mean, I think restraint, restraint, restraint is just to, um, you know, to not overload the pallet, you know, there's, you're dealing with one greens complex, you know, it's one frame, uh, you know, don't try to load the frame. So, so heavy, um, you know, and this is all framed inside the game of golf and trying to cater to the type of people that you're playing that, that are going to play your product. Um, and then there was a time during the nineties too, where, you know, who could build the slope 180 or whatever, you know, just, just blow people away with difficulty. (laughs) How bad was that? You know, and, but everybody was just looking for a mark in the marketplace. I mean, how do you define yourself in a busy marketplace? You just keep getting a little bit more outrageous than the last guy. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think, I mean, the, this I don't know what this minimalist thing means. I think it's a it's a good form of restraint, is what the word minimalist minim, minimalist is.
0: Yeah, and you couldn't. I mean, in the, in one sense, you wouldn't call white oak minimalist, but I think that's what makes it so effective: is this concept of of restraint. Uh, you know, Pete definitely was guilty of of going balls to the wall and you know doing things now at least he was the first one to do these things initially then everybody so many people tried to piggyback on what he did but you know he, he built some very explosive loud golf courses but white oak is 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 different you know there's a rhythm and a cadence and a, and a theme to it and it's consistent throughout the entire golf course it's really it's it's just it's like an um it's like a Uh, like a piano sonata kind of playing off this, this same note, a very interesting one, but it's just, there's not a lot of, it's not Bohemian Rhapsody where you're changing, shifting gears and going from rock to opera back to a ballad to rock. You know what I mean? Uh, But the the one thing we haven't really talked about is over the course of the, the design process of white Oak, Pete became ill and really be, was unable to, to work anymore. And and, and it was gradual. It happened in, in, in phases because the, the process went on for, for a number of, of years. So I wonder if you could just kind of share that aspect of, of this build. This made it, this makes this a very unique golf course because it was, it was really kind of being complete just as, as Pete passed away and the, the last, you know, I don't know, I'll let you speak to it, but the last, Portion of it, he was um, not active. Certainly not the way he was on on the front end. Um, what at, at some point, Alan, you must have known that you were going to be the one that had to take this golf course across the finish line. Is that true?
1: Yes, yes, and and yeah, and it was very. Uh, it was a very unique situation because the when Pete first sat down with the plans, it was a very healthy Pete and full mind and you were able to gain and, and those trips that I talked about from those migrations, I mean, from 13 to 2014 to 15 to 16, I mean, you know, that was where he was progressively getting, you know, getting more, getting sicker, but, you know, I had 110% Pete for the, you know, the, the beginning of the thing. And to, and we talked through it and we are so anxious for it to start. All we could do is talk about it <laughs> because yeah. we didn't get to we didn't get to go ahead to get started on the project. So we would just go out there and visit the thing and talk about it and talk about it and talk about it. And you know, and, and you know, he just kept saying, Are they gonna that Rhino Place ever gonna get started?" And we'd talk about it some more. So yeah, and then when it he came time it the, to he called
0: it the Rhino Place. <laughs> Yeah, they call it the rhino place. Well, there are um, just just for the listener. I don't mean to interrupt Alan, but just for the listener, part of the the uh, white oak conservation, they they have uh, the owner has uh, endangered species from all over the world, including some very rare white and black rhinoceroses. And uh, that's really part of the part of the whole uh, presentation of this complex. Sorry, go continue yeah. on
1: so so yeah so then you know i i ended up uh you know slowly but surely having to talk more with alice through this project and you know so it you know it it was a, a truly a, a pete and alice project because it was all pete in innings one two three four and five and six and then it was alice and came in as a relief pitcher in innings seven eight and nine and uh It was myself out there, but also a a tremendous, I I hate just calling him a shaper because he's a tremendous mind in the business as well. A guy named Tom Weber, who had worked with Pete quite a bit as well. So Tom Weber and and I together, you know, with, with consulting through with Alice every step of the way um, you know, that's how we got the thing on the ground.
0: And a sad, a sad note is that Alice actually passed a year before uh, Pete did, um, but the golf course was finished in around 2019. Is that right? Yes, sir. Yeah. I so, believe
1: that's right. I, I'm terrible with yeah, calendars. And yeah. you if know, neat thing is,
0: is it ever really finished? Alice, is another question.
1: Alice loved the place too. And Alice actually, uh, she had her 90th birthday up there. Um, she chartered a plane from down in South Florida and brought up 11 or 12 girls or something and spent the day up there, uh, so it was a special place for Alice as well as Pete and you know Pete and I spent that day out on the golf course as well so um it was a it was a special place for Pete and Alice it really was it was an it was a you know i I won't I mean it was a neat place you know what may be their last their last deal um they were both they're both very passionate about the
0: place yeah and that's the interesting thing about this is that uh, had this been a different architect at in the end game of, of their life and their career, they might you might have had all the details there for you to execute, the blueprints, the grading plans, all that stuff we've been talking about. And you could have made finished the golf course without them, knowing that you got it, you know, very, very you know, to your words, eighty or ninety percent at least what the vision was. But you know, with without detailed plans and, and a, a set of instructions, you're going off your conversations, you're going off an oral history, you're going off your knowledge of, of what Pete had done before, what he told you, what Alice is, is informing you. It's I'm putting myself in your position and, and thinking that that's still a, a challenging place to be because there is no... There's no, no referral. There's no guide to look at. There's no draw, There's no drawing. No no written instructions. You are interpreting on some level.
1: Yeah, and 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 I would never have been comfortable doing this project with any other architect. But you know, if you talk about going back to my first day with my first times with Pete Dye being in '79 and working with him on projects all the way up to 2019, I mean. You know, uh, not discounting the man's creative genius, but I, ha- I think I had as good a feel as anybody on, you know, how he worked a golf course. Um, I mean, would the golf course be better if I had a healthy Pete? Absolutely. No question about it. There's no question about it. But the fact that we had three, four years to talk about this thing and anticipate getting this thing started – and and worked on the routing with him and talked about concepts with him and talked about concepts with him and Alice and talking about this water off in three direction and and just you know everything that that we had discussed i mean i was i was more comfortable doing that at a place with Pete and and you know we didn't let anything sit either i mean we we me and Tom we we beat those greens to pieces i mean you know we argued and fought like two umpires and an umpire at baseball and home plate, you know, bumping chests with each other. And I just think that that collaborative side and Tom has a great knowledge of Pete as well. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't have been comfortable doing it anywhere, any with anybody else, but I, we spent so much time talking about that golf course and I had Alice and every time I'd get stumped on something, I could bring it to her. And, you know, Alice and I's relationship really, uh, got very involved there towards the
0: end. Having said all that, were there portions of the golf course, or a hole, or a or a, a feature that you felt that you didn't have a clear picture of of what should be done, and, and had to make a an executive decision? For I, I want to say that that I I heard caught wind of the thirteenth hole. There was seemed to be uh, some discussion behind the scenes about what that hole was going to be that be like.
1: Yeah. You've done your homework (laughs) there. You've you've done your homework. Yeah. The 13th hole was one that, um, that we kind of struggled with, um, and uh, actually, I, I ended up talking to PB Die about the, the 13th hole. And, and I did bring PB out one time, and, and he rode the golf course with us. And I had, I had a longstanding relationship with PB. I mean, he was my boss in the summer of 1982 building the honors course. So PB wow. and I had a very good wow. relationship. And uh so so I brought PB out. I mean, I, I you know, I also took trips. Uh, I had never been to Whistling Straits during the progress, the process of this job. I went up to Whistling Straits and I tried to, you know immerse myself in some of the peat that I haven't seen. Um, but I had I had seen Crooked Stick. I had seen the golf club. The golf club, you know, is is a real deal peat deal for sure. Um, so I tried to immerse myself in other things, but yeah, I got, I got a little, you you can't do 18 holes and it was a two year build for us too. It was a long construction window for us, uh, because of all the drainage elements and the, 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 specialty construction that's involved out there. So, yeah, we had a lot of time and, and yeah, you get stumped. I mean, you kinda, you don't, you know, you kinda, so I leaned out on 13 and got some ideas and incorporated a little bit of that for sure in the thirteenth hole.
0: It's a neat hole. And it's so a short, love- yeah, it's a short uh, drive and pitch par four uh with some center uh, like staggered centerline bunkers. You stand on the tee and you just kind of see their little eyebrows of sand, and it really makes you think: what What's my line? You know, do I play to the right, to the left? Do I have enough? You know, in the bag to get over them what's on the other side uh you know what's the angle in it's it's a pretty complex little hole for only being you know 350 yards or 330 yards
1: Yeah I was out there last week with a tour pro and we were standing on the tee and and he and I talked about that and and uh and he's you know his you know the reason I said I I wasn't too excited or didn't like it was cuz it's the only tee shot you, you put your feet on the T and you're like, what, you know, you're not, it's not clearly defined what asked what's asked for you off the T and this tour pro told me, uh, he said, well, that makes it perfectly acceptable because if you got, you know, 17 other T opportunities where it's clearly defined and this one puts a little mystery in your mind, that's not terrible. So he walked me off the cliff a little bit. Um, (laughs) I guess, I guess having to do it all over again, I might've done something different. Um, but then again, I've, you know, any architect, there's never an arch- architects hate going and seeing their. And I'm not an architect, I'm a builder, but hate going and seeing their product after the fact, because there's always wish I would have, would have, should have, could have. Um, that's why Pete, Pete, you know, Pete was the worst guy to come back to his golf courses, because especially if the owner usually, you know, gave him the opportunity to stick yes. the shovel back yeah. in the ground he surely would um you know just cuz he he just he just always thinks the next idea could be the best one so he's just constantly grinding things but yeah the 13th hole that that's it's definitely a little different but there's 18 of them so you know you can't get perfectly comfortable 18 times
0: for what it's worth i th- alan i think it works too you know it's a, it's a change of pace and and once and it's it's very playable at the same time you know it's probably Causes you consternation one time, and then after that, you know you you have an idea of of what you've got in your game that day and what line and that green is really interesting too with that angle. So that would where the pin is affects it. It's a complex little hole. It, I think it works really well. Um, just to kind of let's, I want to pull back in the remaining time we have left and and ask you just some some general things about your your career. And we you, we touched on this a little bit, but just I'm curious. How you think that the 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 job of building golf courses has evolved from where it was thirty years ago? We we talked thirty years ago, and you know, in the nineties and early, even early two thousands that you know, hundreds of golf courses were opening, and so many were were probably shouldn't have been built. I think it's safe to say that, and very few are continue to be compelling golf courses, but from the construction side and your viewpoint on the business how has how has that evolved or changed since those days
1: you know maybe i've i've just participated in the involvement evolvement and the change over the last 40 years um so i've participated and i don't i just i mean i just don't i mean it's changed for sure i mean there's some of this technology that's available now um but as far as you know 18 tees and 18 greens i mean uh you just it's it, uh it's it's still very very similar i mean um i mean we're building USJ greens just about like we did over the years and i mean everything every component of it is is still you know like pete would say you know just drainage drainage and drainage and if you screw that up put in some more drainage um I mean, I I can't see a huge level of of change over the last 40 years. I mean, the business has changed. I mean, you know, you, you know, back when I started, it was, I didn't really even know there was a business. I just go out there and work with Pete and build a golf course. But um, I mean, the business environment has changed and the architectural environment has really changed and it's exciting and new. I think this whole, when the, when the world fell apart uh, and I don't want to get off your question, but the world fell apart in two thousand eight and nine, and it went to a renovation business versus new course business. You know, certain architects adapted to that, and then it turned into a volume of renovation business, and that opened the the door for a lot of new new guys to come into the industry, both architectural and builders, and. I think that's fantastic. I mean, it's almost, we're at such a point of abundance right now, though, that I, I think the next downturn, will, you know, might even be healthy for the industry. I mean, like any industry, you know, booms and busts, uh, it might be, it might be, it might be time, for, but design wise, it's just super cool what so much. So I, I read articles and I'm like, I've never heard of that guy. i never heard of that guy. Well, in the nineties, I knew every golf course architect that was sticking a shovel in the ground. And now there's so many guys, and I see a picture, and I'm like, "That's really cool." Who did that? And I look in the name, I ain't never heard of that. I've never heard of the guy. Yeah. And there's yeah. just so much good stuff being done, um, but they they never take pictures of the bad stuff. Um, that that <laughs> never gets published. <laughs> but uh, but there's just a lot of good stuff being done by a lot of a lot of people, both builders and and um, and architects.
0: Yeah. What I would say to that is over the last decade especially you know since the recession the majority of new golf courses that have been built or were built for a specific reason and they're of a uniquely high quality i would say that covers about 90% of the golf courses that have been built since then there there's very little speculating going on or, or you know very little uh, appetite for investing money on something that didn't have a known rate of return on it so you get these really quality sites Uh, The quality investment in in the product versus the 90s when there was speculation and and things were tied to to the housing market and other things. And, you know, it just was I guess it was assumed I wasn't there at the time, but it was assumed that, you know, there was no downside to to building a. Three hundred golf courses a year. You just assumed that the market would would absorb that, which definitely wasn't the case. So that's one of the things that I notice is is that the quality of product is is so much higher now than uh, there's fewer of them, but the quality is higher than than you know maybe at, at any point in time since the early nineteen twenties. I'm not sure about that exactly, but you know um, I'm starting to see this. And I'd, I'd like to get your input. I'm, we're starting to notice more of that, of a few more of those development, housing development, real estate development, golf courses being built again. I wasn't sure that we'd see that again, at least for a while. Are you picking up on that too? Do you get calls about these types of projects that are associated with real estate?
1: Yes. Yes. We just did one here in Jacksonville with Bobby Weed, but But there is a difference. I mean, there's, you know, back in the 90s, it was throw a golf. You know, the developers learned their lesson, too. Um, I mean, the the golf industry learned the lesson from the 90s. But there is a if, if you're building a development golf course, you are in a very prosperous market. I mean, they're not getting built on the fringe markets. They're getting built in the heart of the strong markets, for sure. The ones being done with housing. And I agree. I like your comment. I hadn't really thought about that. But you're right. The, the quality of the golf that's getting built today, it is a much more thought out um, with purpose project. Otherwise, it's not happening. And the quality of the golf courses, particularly the standalone golf courses that are getting built today, that's that's a, that's a real good observation. They are generally really good, really well thought out and have a solid business plan before they stick a shovel in the ground.
0: You know, on, on, on the, the big level, what you do, you're, you're a, you know, an engineer, you're a problem solver. Uh, you make it happen. That It's the nuts and bolts. It's the infrastructure. It's, it's all the technical things. That's what you and your company brings to the, to the process. Uh, and it's very, it's necessary. You have to have that. Otherwise the, the golf course will fail. This is a. I'm asking your 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 insight, your personal feeling. Do you also? Is it important for you when when your company accepts a job or bids for a job? Do you have to have a kind of a personal connection to the to the outlook of the of the the golf course, the vision, uh, you know, the the architect, and you know, I, I I imagine it's it's got to be for you more than just you know a, a way to. You know, for your company to make income, it, it, do you feel a need to have that uh, emotional connection in a way to a project?
1: Oh, sure. Well, you know, I'm a businessman, and I like to I like to be a part of a project that I know ultimately is going to be you know successful. And and you do feed off the level of passion that the owner has for the project. Um, you know, back again, the '90s we keep talking about it, but back then, I mean, we were just you know rinse, wash, repeat, you know, um, as an industry, but now when you get the opportunity and, you know, we're doing a really cool renovation over in Tallahassee with an owner who's super passionate about it. And I love passionate owners. I mean, I love to have an owner that's, that's, you know, into it and and engaged. Um, I mean, to me, I mean, you know, sure they can drive you a little crazy, but, um, I, I would much rather work for, For a super work with a super engaged architect, a super engaged client, get a golf course superintendent in there that's got more yeses than noes, and just you know the whole team pulling the rope in the same direction, and that's that's what makes building golf courses fun. I mean, when you've got everybody involved pulling the rope in the same direction, and a passionate owner, passionate architect, and it's still it's still even after all these years, I get fired up. And it really puts an onus on 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 our company to perform for that guy. I mean, this guy's, you know, he's building, you know, he's not building twelve of these damn things. He's building one of these things, and uh, it's your opportunity to be a part of something, you know, that this guy's engaged with. That's awesome. Love it, and love working for memberships that are like that too. I mean, we obviously like working for memberships that kind of get consolidated to one or two voices. Um, you know, the committee designing the horse and the camel story for sure. But I love working for passionate clients.
0: Yeah. I'm glad you said that. I was going to ask you that, you know, so much of the work as you alluded to a moment ago over the last, you know, since the recession is, is renovation work at existing golf courses. My thought, and I've asked, I've talked to architects about this many times is you have to get in a different frame of mind when you're going into something that already exists and making tweaks. It's not, I mean, it it can't be the same type of of rush and excitement at when you're taking a, a empty piece of land and turning it into a golf course. Where do you where do your feelings fall on that? Do those renovations and restorations, whatever you want to call them, remodels, give you the same sense of satisfaction as as building a new course?
1: Well, they they do if you know if they're. You know, it's like the the silly Harvard Business School is is you know projects framed and having a good mission statement and mission statement and a good set of objectives. I mean, you know, clubs that just go want to go out there and, and throw dirt around to the convenience of this year's committee is a little silly. But when you are out there on a renovation project, they've decided to take X amount of dollars to solve this problem, whether it's a playability and agronomic environment, you know, whatever the problem may be. Um, you know, it's exciting to go in and fix somebody's problem. So, yes, in most renovations, uh, you know, you have a, a defined objective, whether it's big or whether it's small, whether it's one of these blow up renovations where they want to rebrand their product and they want to have a new look to it. and They want to replace or find a new place in their marketplace, in their, you know, their given marketplace. I mean, I love being a part of those things, and I, you know, we built a twelve-hole golf course where there used to be an eighteen-hole golf course, and this guy's got a par-three thing, and I mean, he just rethought his total brand, and I was excited about that, and it's just flat performed. Um, I love Which seeing that the success of,
0: is that in Jacksonville. Oh, it's
1: a place in Jacksonville. In Jacksonville. Yeah. yeah, it's called the Yards. Yeah, and uh, and they they have just uh, they have I was just enthused to work with them because again, super engaged ownership. And they uh, they they just they just rethought the whole. It was an 18 hole golf course and a driving range, and they put it into a nine hole with a, a six hole par three out the back door. And the activity level on the golf course has just gone through the roof, and people are enjoying it for what it is. And I thought business wise, it was, you know, he's in Ponte Vedra Beach. You know, who wants to build just another golf course in Ponte Vedra Beach? I mean, it's a tough neighborhood to compete from a business <laughs> yeah, standpoint. But yeah, this guy. Yeah, this guy came in and said, I'm not going to I'm not going to do what everybody else is doing. I'm going to do something different. And uh, he's killed it. And I, I, I just I mean, I, I love being a part of something like that. It's super fun.
0: I would imagine one of the most interesting projects that you've been involved with would be Streamsong. You know, compared to all the other golf courses that have ever been built, those courses are kind of in a very small, unique category based on the landforms that they exist on, and the working in pure sand and working with the different architects. All kind of, uh, especially for the red and the black course. Uh, share some thoughts on on Stream Song and what that was like for you and your company.
1: Well, you know, at Stream Song, we were we were the irrigation installer so it was it that was pretty fun uh, uh, anecdotally because uh, all we did was put in the irrigation system so I got to sit back and watch these these guys all three of those guys and all three of their teams go build these golf courses and I could just walk around and have fun and zero pressure as long as you know the irrigation was going <laughs> in the right spot so that was that was that was neat to watch. Because you know those guys, you know between Gil, Core, Crenshaw, and and Doke, I mean, what a batch of super talented bunch of guys! And I could watch walk around and 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 just oftentimes by myself, and there was no pressure on me. I could just walk around and look at what they were doing
0: and just you know just admire it. Okay, I'm going to ask you a couple questions before we sign off. What are you just talked about how recently? Uh, you were able to go see some more uh, die courses that that you didn't work on, Whistling Straits, for instance. What are your personal top five Pete die courses? Courses that that you want to go play?
1: Uh I mean, in no particular order. I mean, the Ocean Course, uh, the early stuff up there in in, uh, in Wisconsin. I mean, Whistling Straits is great, but I thought that I forget the name of the first one. I thought was super cool, Black Wolf Run. Um, <laughs> Yes, Black Wolf Run. I thought was super cool. The Honors Course is super cool. Long Cove, Harbor Town TPC, and the Golf Club. The Golf Club up in New Albany, uh, Ohio. Um, Not nah, teeth of the dog, but um, I would say that was the batch. Those are I don't good, know if I pretty English good points. ones. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if I gave you more than uh, more than five. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the stadium course, you know, in in Sawgrass. I mean, I I think that's you know, love or hate what's sitting out there. Um, but the you know that that I think is was kind of the pivot point in Pete's career. And I know I'm biased and super involved out there, but you know the the courage. If you look back to 1980, the courage that, A, Mr. Beeman had in hiring Pete, and then the courage from a design standpoint, that Pete knew that he was, you know, building a golf course that, you know, the tour players were going to come to on a regular basis. And that, you know, that's, that's like Augusta in that terms. I mean, the U.S. Open rolls all over the place, the British Open rolls, all the PGA rolls all over the place. But Augusta and TPC are the two standalone products that they come to. Year after year after year, and Pete knowing that was going to happen, and and knowing that the you know how uh, under the microscope he was going to be, and the courage he displayed in 1980 to put what he'd put on the ground, um, you know I think is just remarkable. I mean, if you really got to put yourself in in 1980 and 81 and where golf was, but you know that's Pete Dye. I mean, that's just. You know, courage surrounded by a great knowledge of the game. Um, I think that you know, love or hate the golf course, but respect respect the the courage that the man had to put it on the ground like he did. Um, that's why you know I'm biased, but I think Pete is you know is uh, you know he is the Michael Jordan. I mean, I've said whatever the the Mount Rushmore, whatever, but I mean. to do what he did there is just remarkable. And I don't know, you know, everybody would have put something on the ground out there, but Pete's willing to get as close as he did to that knife's edge of, of courage and uh, outrage and just, but it's all surrounded in a solid knowledge of the game of golf. I mean, the guy was a great golfer and understood the game of golf and Alice understood the game of golf. And I thought, you know, that can't be overstated in Pete's career for sure.
0: Yeah, I don't think I could have said it any better, Alan. And I agree with you. If if you asked me my top five in order, I still think as as much as I love Ocean Course and Whistling Straits and you know the the visceral experience of playing there, how how rich that is, I still go back to to TPC. That's the golf course that I would want to. I you know as as tough as it can be, I'd want to play it over and over again because I think there's so much nuance in it. I think the variety of holes, the shots that you're asked to hit, each hole to me is is it's such a it's its own challenge it's 18 epic mythical challenge is in in 118 whole round and in architectural conversations you often hear that that harbor town was kind of like the turning point in history it's one of the most influential golf courses and and i i used to believe that but the more i think about it and based on kind of even what you just said i, I really think i would shift that and say that tpc was maybe one of the most modern influential courses more than Harbortown, because after Harbortown, not that many golf courses were built. The seventies were a really uh, a quiet time for architecture and, and, and all of those things that Pete built kind of went, th- those ideas, those forms, even Pete didn't build a lot of golf courses in the seventies. And th- those ideas kind of went dormant and then they resurfaced in the fashion of TPC. And it happened right at the beginning of a giant construction boom, Right at the point when uh, it put it on television, it, it was so influential to other architects and developers and real estate, uh, real estate developers. And, and everybody wanted an island green and wanted pot bunkers and bulkheading. And just for the sheer impact that it had on, on what came after it. I mean, TPC is, you'd be hard pressed to find a, a golf course up to that point that had a bigger influence on the direction of golf course architecture.
1: Yeah. It was, I mean, yeah, the chicken or egg of that era. And, and, you know, and when I have quiet conversations with golf architects, I mean, you put a mic in front of them and they say one thing, but when you just talk to guys, I mean, guys, they, they see it, they know it. they, I mean, he is, he, you know, some of the older architects, I mean, that were competing with Pete in in that era for projects and stuff. um, You know, they, they all recognize that. And you talk about, You know, uh, Whistling Straits and Kiowa, I mean, you know, our man Pete would say Ray Charles could build something decent out there because the property was so good. But then you step off into a swamp like TPC was, and first of all, getting a hold of the water and getting the thing to drain, you know, that was phenomenal. And, and, uh, you know, I guess what I'm saying is some of these architects these days are getting some mighty good pieces of ground, and they're doing mighty good things with it. But the talents of an architect to go into a piece of, uh, you know, the, there's a story on the, the wall says, you know, Dean Beeman paid $10 for that property. I think he overpaid yeah, um, because it yeah. was so bad. And and yet Pete got control of the water, uh, had to fix the soil conditions by going in there and taking all the, the top overburden off and burying it in the bottom and mining his own sand on the golf course. And Pete did this without a company. He hired, he just hired guys. And it was totally – I mean, there was probably him and a guy named Dave Postaway. There was two guys out there who had ever built a golf course before, knew anything about what they were doing, and they just assembled around that knowledge and built that thing. I mean – and then I think about Pete, who I think was 56 or 57 years old at the time that thing was being built. Um, Is that right? I think that's pretty close to right. Mm-hmm. And the, mm-hmm. the energy that he had – and the grind and staying at the holiday inn and feeding his dog out of the, out of the uh, the Toyota and just, just everything, everything associated. I mean, that man was all in and had an energy level to produce at the age of 56 or 57 that whew, he could get after it. And again, Sunday was just another day of the week. I mean, it was daylight to dark out there every step of the way. and And he just brought an energy to it for sure. He knew what he had. He knew he knew his opportunity too. I mean, he was ultra focused on that thing, as Alice was too.
0: I wish I could have seen it in the first iteration. You know, you see those early pictures yeah, from that first too. year, and there's, yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't look anything like it looks now. It was so raw, and the sand and the the long grasses and the textures. It looked just so cool. You know, and that every
1: you know they they. You think that was a a genius, and you see everybody going to these rough edges nowadays, but that was almost a function of the technology. I mean, we had a single-row irrigation system, meaning we only had one set of sprinklers going down the middle of the road with these 690s. We might have put two rows or added a bump head or something in the landing areas. But the reason the edges of that golf course looked rustic, rough, or looked like crap, however you want to say it, is because there was no irrigation and there was no maintenance out there. And the irrigation would not reach out there. So what grew would natively grew, but yeah, those early pictures are just gorgeous. And then you got to just watch the evolution. I mean, that golf course has got to serve too many purposes these days to, to be that anymore, you know, I mean, it's a resort golf course for a big, sum of the weeks and so, you know, it'd be hard pressed to, to, you know, to walk 50,000 fans around that thing, you know, every year and, and all the service and trucks and everything so those are good memories but it probably never really has a place to go back to that level of rustic
0: you know no i'm imagining around it sawgrass right now is already probably six hours could you imagine if you you know you had that (laughs) you know that's just everything perfect i'm I'm gonna ask you one last question alan i I, you talked about the the yard in jacksonville and and how fun that was what's a a golf course that you were involved building that you don't think gets the attention or accolades that it deserves it's a chance for you to kind of shine a light on on a underdog course
1: well i'll tell you uh that one is a little easier for me and i and i hate to stay say so zip code but there's a golf course in jacksonville called timaquana and and it is an old golf course that's recently gone through a restoration by bruce hepner yep and and when somebody says you know they're coming to jacksonville what do i got to go play i mean the tpc is always there for the taking and it's it's got a warm spot in my heart but uh that tim aquana is my favorite golf course in this city to go play on a daily basis uh it is really 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 good super good place you know town has got a spot in my heart for sure and then i you know, I haven't, I've never actually played the golf club up in New Albany, but it is a super neat place too. Um, what was your question? The under the radar one? I'd say, I'd say ah, Tim Aquana, hard to say it's under the radar because they're playing some events on it nowadays, but it's, it's super cool. You know, it's just awesome. And White Oak, I mean, obviously White Oaks, you know, kind of a neat thing. It's hard to talk about it because not a lot of people get to see it. I was super glad to hear you played golf. I'm I'm anxious to get off this interview with you so that you can tell me what you really, I mean, tell me something bad about it because I'm not getting enough input on the thing. I'm anxious to hear, you know, some constructive criticism. You know, when you're working with Pete, you get plenty of it. But when you build a golf course and nobody gets to play it much, you don't get a lot of, you know, healthy buddy criticism, I guess I'd say.
0: We spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about Pete Dye, And deservedly so, in my opinion. Dai might or might not have been one of the sport's greatest architects, however you choose to define that. That's a subjective assessment. But where there can be little doubt is that he was one of the three or four most influential. People who alter the trajectory of their field, who change the way their peers and competitors go about their work, usually come once every generation or two. From the late 1960s until the mid-1990s, golf course architecture was Pete Dye. Despite the success of Tom Fazio, Jack Nicholas, and others, Dye remained the gravitational force of that era, and his best work continues to stand up today. What's interesting about White Oak is that it represents a return to basics. Not that it's a basic course, but it feels far more like his work from the early 1980s than anything else he'd built in decades. This would be the equivalent to Picasso or Monet, or Scorsese or Tarantino going back to the modes of art in which they first began as their final act of disruption. What could be more radical and courageous than that? It was truly wonderful and fascinating to talk to Alan McCurric about the way Dye designed and the way he worked on so many projects with Dye, including White Oak. What a co-pilot seat to be sitting in. I hope someday more people will get to see White Oak. For now, we have some great photography and videos of the course up at GolfDigest.com. Please share this episode with anyone you think might be interested in learning more about Pete Dye and White Oak. Subscribe to the podcast if you haven't clicked that button yet. I'd love to get feedback on the podcast, so hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at FeedTheBall. And go to FeedTheBall.com to listen to past episodes with other people who are close to Dye, like Bobby Weed, Jim Urbina, Tim Liddy, and his son PB Dye. Thanks to Alan McCurk for joining me. Thanks to The Sundog for the music. Please do your laundry in cold water. And until we get a chance to do this again, adios.